0: just sort of doing doing what's in front of you, you know, like putting your hand to something. Um, uh, before I... So, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good um, morning. Before I uh, share this with you, uh, first of all, I just, I just want to acknowledge somebody, and then I want to tell you a little bit of the process of this unintentional series that I've been doing. So, I, I want to acknowledge someone... Um, uh, uh, a man by the name of Tony Saxon, he was a prophet in Nelson uh, Very deeply prophetic man, has had a pretty, pretty rugged journey He was one of the ones that uh, prophesied about us moving here So before we came here we had this crazy six month period of time with prophetic words um, And he was a part of that Anyway, uh, he has gone to, gone to be with the Lord now He, um, he, he died this week and I just, you know, you, you may not have ever heard of his name, but I just feel like it's important to acknowledge him. Um, he, like many of us, has had a pretty difficult journey, and, um, uh, you know, every, everyone's journey is difficult, always in different ways, and I think that sometimes in the contemporary church we don't like to talk about the fact that the journey is difficult, but the Bible says the one who endures to the end shall be saved. It doesn't just say we perpetually enjoy, you'll never have a dark day you know i mean honestly how would how's that working out for you no no um i also uh uh i want to share with you a weird experience like there there's a lot of um it's really a good time to to be people of prayer to keep our to keep our spiritual wits about us and to have connection with other people so Last Sunday, uh, Tasha and I were in Dunedin, and I was, I was preaching in Dunedin. I was preaching in a church called the Abundant Life Church or Abundant Life Center down there. Interestingly enough, it's probably the most egalitarian church I've ever been to in my life. Like Such a mixture of people from, from, you know, from successful business people to people that have become a part of the fellowship from... from the exact opposite background, and, and there's, no, there's no who's who, I like that, there was no who's who, there was just like people all mingling and, and all, I re- really enjoyed it. So last Sunday I was preaching and there were a lot of young people there, so I preached about a message that I believe is really important for young people about uh, evolution and climate terror being the foundations of a lot of the destruction that the enemy is bringing into young people's lives. So uh, during the worship, I'm looking at my notes, and during the worship I feel a strange sense of, ooh, hello, what was that? And it passed, and I got up, and I began to preach, and boy, there was great liberty. I was like, well, this is, I'm having fun with this. And then when I got to the end of it, I felt like, it's not the roadrunner, it's Wiley E. Coyote. You know how he would run into walls at high speed and go splat? That's what it felt like. It felt like I ran full speed into something that stopped me in my tracks to the point where I actually had to give the microphone to the pastor and say, you need to call them out here. I can't even do it. Cause it so, and um And here's where, so so that was some opposition. And it was was pretty fierce. And my friend John Stephens was there. Uh, He lives in Nelson. And he just happened to come up and he said, hey, uh, something hit you there, didn't it? And I said, yeah, it sure did. And he said this, he said, I think that that message stirred the attention of the principality over the university. And I was like, Aha, ha. So, so now I'm encouraged. But before that, I wasn't encouraged. And so that's why we, we, need, we need one another. Um, so, you know, it's been a bit of a sudden change for me um, over the, you know, you, m- most of you have seen it happening, where all of a sudden I'm sort of all over the jolly place. Um, and I always enjoy preparing to preach. I've been all over the place for years, but now I'm all over the place geographically. Um, so I'm going to Palmerston North tomorrow. Just got back from Dunedin. I was at Faith Bible College on Thursday out there with, uh, with a little group of students. I always enjoy, I think I enjoy preparing to preach more than I enjoy preaching. Like, I love sitting there with my Bibles and my software and, you know, and, and looking things up. And uh, I enjoy the preparing to preach. And my most intense preparation is always when I'm preparing to preach here. And I'll I'll tell you a little bit of what's been happening. Um, When I'm preparing to preach here, you know, like you've heard the messages I've done recently, you know, like I've done this accidental, uh, unintentional series of messages. I talked about living in the shadow of the return of Christ, talked about the bridegroom king, talked about the bride has made herself ready, and then that most recent message I did four weeks ago with you, the rider on the white horse. And I've really enjoyed preparing those messages. Monday, after preaching those messages, is always chaos and carnage. So, uh, so what I tend to do on Monday, you can ask Steve this. He doesn't see much of me on Monday because I'm usually locked in the prayer room. And part of it is I'm seeking the Lord, and part of it is I'm dealing with whatever got stirred up. And so what happened is I preached that message, Shadow of the Return, moving from living, just looking at the cross, to living, knowing that Jesus will return. And you know, then Monday I'm in the prayer room, and as I'm in the prayer room, God shows me the next message and the next message, and so I was pretty convinced when I was here last time, uh, preaching the um, the rider on the white horse. And I, I, I I've still been listening to that song by Dalton and Anna Thomas. All hail the rider on the white horse. All hail the bloody king, not saying that as a swear word, but saying a reference to his robe dipped in blood, all hail our conqueror long promised, Lord of war, Prince of peace, that Lord, I love that line, Lord of war, Prince of peace, I love that, Marianne and I love that, I love that, that line, Lord of war, Prince of peace. And you know, uh, I've now, uh, since I was here with you preaching that, I've, I've preached that in three other churches. And you know what I've noticed is when you preach this sort of thing, there is anointing on it like I've never experienced before. But then Monday, there's opposition. And so, anyway, I preached that to you, and Monday, sure enough, I was like, oh, hello. There we go. There's the response. So I get to the prayer room, and I'm, I'm in there, and I'm you know, praying and cranking up the music and praying. And I was standing by the plumb line. So this is four weeks ago tomorrow. I'm standing beside the little plumb line hanging in the corner of the prayer room. So I preached the Rider on the White Horse. Oh that's right. Simon is yes, that's right. See I can tell something's happening. It's weird when I preach elsewhere, people look at me. When I preach here, you're all looking at the screen because what what's up there is good, you know. Um so I'm standing there in the prayer room by the plumb line, and I have this feeling of a gigantic wave cresting over me like this, like, you know, this feeling of a wave about to crash, you know, and if you've ever, you know, I'm not talking about Mount Monganui wave, I'm talking about a piha wave, you know, like when I was a Westie, we, we used to mock the Mount Monganui surfers, go, that's not surf, come to Piha, you know, a little bit like a Crocodile Dundee moment, and so... I have this feeling of this wave cresting over me. And at first I thought it was revival because a lot of people are having prophetic pictures of revival coming like a wave. At first I thought it was revival, but the Lord said to me, it's not revival, it's eternity. And so I spent a long time standing there by the, <laughs> the plumb line thinking about how eternity can feel like a bit of an ethereal concept. Um, It can feel almost even a bit mythical, because this reality, while we're in it, is so real, and yet eternity is a rapidly approaching reality, and we'll spend far more time in eternity than we did in this age or stage, to the point where it will make this age seem as if it were just a moment, just a heartbeat. So, as I stood there, uh, thinking I'd finished with the rider on the white horse, uh, then the Lord began to speak to me, and what I'm going to endeavor to share with you is what he showed me and what I've been wrestling with for the last four weeks. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, I um, last week at this conference, I, I, preached, I preached myself hoarse, and I've had a scratchy throat all week, so... If you see me reaching for my coffee, that's, I'm just dealing with the fact that I basically just about yelled my lungs out last week. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together together. And made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I looked up that term, ages to come. It means, uh, when, when it's translated, it means forever. It means an unbroken age, it means the perpetuity of time, and it means eternity. So this passage is saying that for ages to come, forever, for eternity, God is going to be showing for eternity His grace and kindness towards us. He's putting it on display forever. There will never be a day when His grace and His mercy in Christ Jesus towards us will not be on display. The other thing, of course, is that this makes the case that there are ages to come. There is an eternity to come. This is not all there is. In fact, this is a brief moment. Two Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen. We right? Okay, you've gone into your quiet focus. You know, you're locked and loaded and listening now, and I, I get that. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Anyone been experiencing any of that? Difficulties here and there and all around, but inwardly, like you feel this contrast. It's like, it feels like everything seems to, as it were, be going to hell in a handcart, but on the inside, you're being renewed. Hmm. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Context, this is Paul. Think about his life. Think about this is the man stoned to death and didn't quite die and got up and carried on preaching. This is the man who was, who was, was whipped to within an inch of his life. This was the man shipwrecked and the snake biting his arm. He, all, he refers to all of this as his light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. Just look around. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So here is the eternal perspective the troubles and the difficulties and the challenges that we face in this life are light and momentary troubles that are i guess if we approach them in a godly way achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all light and momentary troubles this gives you a this is a helpful perspective because when you're in troubles they feel so permanent and unending but he says they are light And they are momentary. And so this passage connects our lives today with the eternal rewards in the next life. So if eternity is cresting over us, if eternity is bearing down on the planet, what is eternity like? Well, there's bits and pieces written here and there in the scriptures, but I'm not sure they necessarily paint a complete picture. But look at Revelation 21, 3 through 5 For the old order of things, referring to this order, has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So just here for a moment, there is a brief description of some of the characteristics of this age to come. And would you agree that these few verses describe a reality far different to what we currently have? No more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more pain. The dwelling of God, no no more of a sense of abandonment that we so often feel plagued by when we believe the devil's lies that God has left. Hello? Would you also agree that these few verses describe a reality in Definitely and immensely superior to what we have now. So, here we have eternity, and here we have now. The last message I preached, you know, it said, every eye, Revelation 1, every eye will see Him. So all of history is coming to this point where every eye will see Jesus as the rider on the white horse. But what happens between the rider on the white horse and the ages to come. I, didn't, I thought, oh, there's bound to be a little bit. There's a lot. The Bible describes a time of immense turbulence on the earth. And it describes reckoning. If you remember last time, I talked to you about the cry of the martyrs, where they're crying out, how long? Not out of vengeance, but because righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So there is reckoning. And so what I want to share with you here, this is not a complete picture by any means, but I just want to share with you a few things that got my attention. You ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Number one, judgment. First of all, Revelation chapter 20, verse one through three, says this, I saw an angel. Now just notice that, an angel. Not even an archangel, just an angel. Just, perhaps you might even say like an everyday angel. Just, just one, of the, one of the angels. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He, this angel that's not an archangel, not even, you know, it's not Gabriel, it's not Michael, it's just an angel. Seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So here we have Satan being bound with a chain by an angel. One, an angel, single. Not an army of angels, not not an archangel, just an angel. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, an angel. So... Here we have the devil being bound with a chain, thrown into the abyss and sealed in there for a thousand years. And look at this passage here from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 11. This is an Old Testament prophecy, I suppose you might say, uh, about Satan being exposed. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms covered you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, see, this is, this is a reference to, to the, the fall of Satan. I will ascend into the heavens. That was the sin. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pits. Those who see you stare at you and ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrow through its cities and would not let captives go home? Here's a moment where the people are looking and they're going, is this the one? It was you? You were the one like, that deceived them. You were the one that caused so much carnage. You appeared so strong. But they're, they're saying, but look at you. And so here we have Satan is bound for a thousand years. And during that time, Jesus is ruling on the earth without the activity and the influence of Satan. This is the, called the millennium reign. And it's referred to as a thousand years of peace. Then Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So after this thousand years, even then, it says that Satan is released. Why would Satan have to be released? I don't know much about this and I'm sure some of you probably do. But I think that this is like the ultimate display of the depth, the depths of sin in humanity that even after a thousand years without the influence of Satan, there are still those that are rejecting Jesus. There are still those aligning against him, even without a thousand years of Satan's influence. Uh, I'll just segue into this. I was talking to my wife um, uh, after, after my uh, Wile e. Coyote experience. And she said, said, you know, sometimes I think our message, particularly our gospel message or our message to young people, she says, sometimes I think it lacks something. And I said, what does it lack? She says, you know, most people feel like something's wrong. Deep down, we feel like something is wrong. She says a lot of young people, particularly, you know, they hate themselves and they they, they, they're confused and this, that, and the other thing. And then our message comes along and basically says, no, no, you're awesome. She said, maybe it's a more healthy message to go, actually, yeah, you do. You do stink. You do stink. You do. There is something wrong. It's sin. And until you repent, there is no hope. And then I, uh, she, she, we were thinking about something Tim Keller said, and I I actually, in front of the church, I just about burst out weeping when I said this. The cross shows us two things. It shows us that in our sin, we're worse than we ever dreamed that we could possibly be, the depth of sin. But the cross also shows us that we are loved more than we could ever imagine that we were loved. Even after a thousand years without the influence of Satan. See, you know, I don't know about you, but I can can be like, well, you know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be like this. If it wasn't for him, I I wouldn't be so self-righteous when I'm driving my car and someone pulls in front of me, you know, or whatever, whatever your thing is, you know, like we've all got our thing. Um, But even after a thousand years without Satan's influence, there are still those willing to rise up. And then verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented night and day forever. So Revelation 22, 20 verse 10, this is the full and final judgment pronounced on Satan forever. That's the end of his influence and activity in the human experience. End of story, the final full judgment of Satan. Inevitable and unstoppable, and he knows it. Verse 11, the great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. This is now telling us every human being will one day stand before this throne that is called the great white throne. Every human being. Every one of us. You, me, every human being will stand before that throne. I don't know about you, but that's pretty good motivation for endurance. Hello? There are times when life stinks there are times when it's hard. There are times when being a Christian is not a bunch of fluffy budgies. There are times when it's just hard. But each one of us will one day stand before this throne and books will be open. Our lives somehow recorded in these books. Everything that we do, everything that we don't do, everything that we say, every, every thought, attitude, it's all somehow recorded. And then there is this one book, the book of life, and it says anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I know that there are a lot of people that have got various different takes on what that means. There are, there are theories about what hell may or may not be. There are, I'm, I'm more of a traditionalist, but there are viewpoints that are different to that now. And I'm not really here to comment on that other than to say whatever or however that lake of fire actually looks, let's avoid that. So here's what we begin to see here, and I know you know this, but this age that we are living in, this brief moment is the testing ground for eternity. This is the place of choosing. The choices that we make in this life have repercussions into eternity, not just the decision we make regarding whether we are a believer in Christ, but the decisions that we make. And so this is why eternity must be at the forefront of our lives, our priorities, and at the forefront of the message of the church of Jesus Christ. Ashley sent me a couple of quotes that I would like to share with you. From Art Katz, a church without the eternal dimension, however correct it may be in every other form, is not an apostolic or authentic church. Or this one, what does the world say? If you are heavenly minded, in brackets, eternally minded, you are of no earthly good. I've heard that. Oh, you Christians, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. That's a lie. The opposite is true. Except you are heavenly-minded. Except you are eternally-minded. You are of no earthly value. Every value that the world celebrates as right and true is unmistakably a lie. What the earth needs is not more earth, but more heaven. Shush. So now we have this term that appears also in Matthew 22, weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Just, okay. (laughs) Thank you, Simon. So you know the story because we covered it ages ago, Matthew 22, the king preparing a banquet and there are those who turn up late and they can't come in. Verse 13, the king told his attendants, oh no, this is the guy. So there were those who couldn't come in and then there was the guy who turned up but didn't get dressed right. And it says, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thrown out of the wedding hall because he wasn't wearing the right garments for the wedding. Now, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of, deep ultimate regret and a sense of loss and just as an aside for this some of you read Rick Joyner's book The Final Quest a remarkable book and he actually in his book The Final Quest he referred to this place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth as actually being still inside of heaven but on the very outer fringes and the weeping and gnashing of teeth was we could have been much closer had we lived differently. So whether it's referring to a weeping and gnashing of teeth of being excluded from salvation and condemned, or whether it's a weeping and gnashing of teeth, or if, if I'd only lived differently and my priorities had been different, I may have been closer to the King in eternity. Either way, here's one of the things that I, Jared and I were just talking about this, and we, I, I, I was suggesting to him that in in Particularly the pop culture church, we have this give your life to Jesus, stick your hand up right, you're saved, you're going to heaven, and everyone gets the same. One Corinthians three, I know there's a lot of word here, and I don't apologize to that for that. I told you I preached in a church one time and the guy said, That was a really good message, just too many Bible verses. It's like alrighty. One Corinthians three, ten. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus Christ using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. Their work will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If not, it is burned up. The builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you know what this says? It says, There is reward and loss on the day of the Lord. This passage here is plainly stating that eternal rewards are not one size fits all. It's plainly stating that not every believer receives the same reward. It says you can build with with things that do not survive the fire into eternity, wood, hay, and straw, and you'll be saved, but you'll only be like one escaping through the flames. But if what you build with was was gold, silver, and costly stones. I think referring to things that survive the fire of the judgment day, those things will carry on with you as a reward. So here's what he's he's urging us, saying, live with eternity at the fronts of your minds and your value system. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. How can I get a better car? How can I get a better house? How can I have more money? How can I have more Facebook influence? How can I blah, 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 blah? None of that is going to survive the fire. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Can I suggest to you, this is urging us to live with a burning desire to know the Lord. And a burning desire for these children to know the Lord. A burning desire to truly, thoroughly, absolutely know Him with no regard to the outward appearance. But I I want to know you. And then I would also suggest it probably points towards uh, us needing to have urgency in evangelism. When it comes to the word evangelism, I want you to take the word evangelism and I want you to dump all the stereotypes. The word evangelism is something the the enemy hates the word evangelism. And so he, he, he always picks on what he hates, like the term born again. How did the word born again become an insult? Or you're one of those born-again Christians. Hmm? He loves to take those things that that he hates and just defile them. And the word evangelism is covered with all sorts of, of wrong associations now. Just ditch those. Evangelism is simply you and me as the individual people that God has made us to be with the strengths and weaknesses, the places that He put us with humility, just simply in whatever way He can flow through you, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in eternity. Whether it's Andrea in Vanuatu helping the teachers, or whether it's me ranting and raving at Abundant Life in Dunedin, or whether it's you with your grandchild or you with your neighbor tomorrow, Jesus put it also this way, Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. This is the picture of the one, I want to save my life. I want to have the best, I want to have my best life now. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. I always just think of, you know, when you get a handful of sand and you hold it this way and you you try to hold it, but it just still runs through your fingers. But he says, the one who loses their life for me will find it. That there's something about the nature of the life that you and I have been given. The harder we try to hang on to it, the more we lose it. But when we lose it, not just for anything, but when we lose it for his sake, gotta lose our life for him. We find it. And he goes on, say so what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Doesn't that make you think of Jim Elliott? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Do you see? I believe that this is something really important that God is saying. And, uh, and uh, John and Carol Arnott were here last week. Uh, they were in Wellington. And interestingly enough, I've never heard John Arnott, you know, from Toronto. I've never heard him talk about the end times before. But you know what he said? He said, rising above the the different interpretations of how events unfold. He said, rising above that, we have to preach the message of the soon coming King. We're not a fool if we give what we cannot keep to gain what we can never lose. Two more Bible verses. Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness and obtained the promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And then listen to this. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might, might obtain a better result. What's going on? Hang on a minute. Let's just pull over for a moment. What is happening here? Others in torture said, don't stop. They were offered deliverance. And they said no to it. Why? That they might gain a better resurrection. Now you might go, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Problem is, we can't deny it because there it is written in black and white in the Bible. They refuse to deny their faith. Here, here, is, here is the rub for us. They refuse to deny their faith to accept deliverance, to receive deliverance from, from some sort of torture. Their eyes were fixed so firmly on eternity that they were focused on, I want to have a better resurrection. In the documentary, Sheep Among Wolves, Anna Thomas is talking about the Iranian church and particularly the Iranian women leading the Iranian church. And she says this, the message of the Western church has been, how can I make this life the best life possible? And she said in Iran, their message is, forget this life I'm living for the next one. Imagine living for a better resurrection in that sort of a context. There are measures of this already beginning to happen. There are measures of this where as, as certain things begin to ramp up in the culture, there, there are parts. I have felt the pressure to do this. You say, we just won't talk about that. Because that'll get me in trouble. we'll, we'll We'll just leave that alone. Let's just stay here. And to some extent, we can still preach. Well, we can still preach the gospel now. But that squeeze is likely to continue. Do you think it's going to be acceptable in our world to preach, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except they come through me." Do you think that's going to be acceptable? Do you think, do you think, unless you repent, you will perish? is going to remain acceptable. Do you think the message that every eye will see him and every human being will stand before the great white throne do you think that is going to be acceptable going forward of course it's not. And so we talk about this now going actually we need to begin to shift our focus so that we maybe maybe the picture that Hebrews 11 conjures up is you know of something like I don't know, I, I picture the, the, the torture dungeon and the princess bride. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not making light of it, but you know, you've got the guy on the machine and, you know, and, um, and he's, he's being tortured and um, maybe, maybe it's not that you would be on a, on a rack being tortured, but maybe it's that you would just avoid certain areas to stay out of trouble. And before you know it, suddenly the church is making the same mistake that was made in the 1930s where whole swathes of the Bible are being rewritten to become, quote, politically correct. Just saying. Here is my final exhortation for you. Actually, Ken, would you mind grabbing your guitar? I think some guitaring might be quite nice. You doing okay? Have you gone with that lot? Okay, let's go back to the rider on the white horse. That was more fun. I think after this one I'm done, but I'll be in the prayer room. I'll be all right. You might not be in the prayer room tomorrow because I'm going away. I'll probably be sitting on the plane to Wellington with my headphones on, and goodness knows what might happen. My prayer room tomorrow might be 3A. That's my seat. Okay, here's, 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 here's my last thing. Actually, would you stand for this? Yes, she should come and stand with yeah. her husband, I believe. You can go stand with her if you like. as well as, as a as a man very definitely married to a wife that prefers the back row rather than the front i'm Totally okay with that. I not you just close your eyes and let me just read this? First Thessalonians four, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Hallelujah. And so we believe that God will bring forth with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Hallelujah. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord Himself will come down from heaven Therefore, give courage to one another with these words. Holy Spirit, thank you for your anointing. Thank you for your presence that comes. And Lord, in our weakness, you make us strong. In our double-mindedness, you make us resolute and steadfast. And Lord, by the spirit of wisdom and revelation, as you open our eyes, to the things that you are doing and the things that you are saying. We become those fueled to endure because we know that these troubles, these difficulties that we face, they are light and they are momentary. And Lord, I'm asking that you would help each one of us and help any who may come and stumble across this recording to be people living for eternity and in this life building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, and costly stones that will survive the fire of the day and produce reward in eternity. I'm asking, Lord, that You would cause lukewarmness, and fainting of heart to be far from us. Lord, cause our hearts to burn with fresh love for Jesus Christ. Cause our hearts to burn with fresh fire from the Holy Spirit and fresh passion to participate in evangelism and seeing men, women and children everywhere fit and ready. In Christ Jesus for the great white throne. Father, we thank You that Your Word plainly states that there is a day of reckoning and that the devil will be thrown forever into a place that burns. And we say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, our God reigns and You have defeated Your foes in eternity. And I ask now, Lord, let Your anointing come on every person Let Your anointing come on us right now in Jesus' Name. The weight of Your presence, the weight of Your anointing, the fire that burns hot enough and bright enough to last for a lifetime in Jesus' Name.